Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I am joined by the founder of a company called Scout RFP, uh, Chris Crane. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. So Scout is probably in, not in the sexiest industry in the world. You guys make procurement software, uh, but the company itself is incredibly successful. So after just five years of being a business, you got, you got acquired by Workday for a reported price of somewhere around half a billion dollars. Uh, for those that are not familiar or perhaps not in the industry, what is procurement uh, and what's procurement software? It is one of the least sexy industries out there, which is why, part of why we love it. Um, so if you think about buying anything at a large large company, that has to go through procurement. It has to go through sourcing. And so we're, we're one of those back office functions that no one, no one really gives any credit to. But if they didn't exist and they weren't doing their jobs, you'd show up without a monitor and without a desk to work. So that's... And we really try to, to simplify their lives and streamline a lot of what they're doing. Typically, your sourcing teams just haven't been given much investment in the past. And so we're really coming in and building software focused on them and helping them make better decisions, generate more value for the company. And they're all, they've also gone through a transformation over the past few years, going from just that kind of back office, let's not talk to procurement, to really being kind of a, a key consultant and partner with the business. And they're they're really... Uh, customer service focused on making sure that the entire organization can run as smoothly as possible. So you say that it's not the sexiest industry, and uh, that's part of the reason why you guys got involved with it. How did you get involved with procurement, or maybe how did you get involved with the founders uh, to to get started with Scout RFP? Yeah, so uh, two great questions. Um, On the the how did I get involved with the rest of the founding team, we all went to university together, and that's where, where we initially met. Uh, Alex and I were both mechanical engineers. Stan and Andrew were both um, financial folks in the in business school. And then we all went our separate ways. Stan and Alex had started a company when we were all in university doing online ordering. And then we all had different interactions with uh, procurement and with sourcing overall. My background is mechanical engineering, so I was designing heavy machinery, and then I had to go out and build or buy parts of it. Mm-hmm. And so I dealt with sourcing from the inside, just trying to figure out how do we make these big capital purchases. And it was always kind of a, a painful process because I was at, at a company that wasn't that mature as far as sourcing goes. And then Stan and Alex were dealing with it on the supplier side, responding to these kind of crazy RFPs that were written by folks that buy a lot of pepperoni, but not so much software. And then we, we were all sitting around kind of discussing what are some pains that we see in business. And just the concept of sourcing was something that regardless of, of what angle we'd come to it from, we all found that there was... A, a general pain there and, and something needed to be done to solve it. Mm-hmm. So you, you felt this pain firsthand and uh, maybe for the folks that have not experienced or maybe they haven't worked at a large enough company that, that had kind of a dedicated procurement department, how, how, are, how, is, how does procurement usually work? Like for companies, let's say, that are not using Scout, how is it usually done? Uh, ve- very slowly and painfully. It's typically done through Word, Excel, and email and Sourcing and, and procurement there, it's really a compliance organization is why it's 
initially created and then it kind of grows out into a, a value add organization as, as the company matures. And so there's a, a lot of red tape around it. Um, I mean, a, a lot of our customers have either are basically approaching an IPO or have just gone through an IPO and that's when they're suddenly trying to create a, a sourcing team for the first time because they realize that all these different folks have been buying software and now they, they need to have a contract compliance um, department that understands how are we actually doing proper reviews? What have we signed up for? What's going on? And so that tends to be the angle that, that sourcing comes into being from. And at, at a large company, it just tends to be a kind of long, arduous process where it's, it's really structured around making pretty large purchases. And so just trying to get little things bought can be really painful. Mm -hmm. There tends to be a lot of folks just don't know where to buy stuff. If, if you go ask any of your friends that work at a large company, you know, if you need to buy a new piece of software, how do you do that? It tends to be one of those things you're like, well, I'd ask a person, they'd, they'd direct me over there and then somewhere else. And, you know, two weeks later, I might have an answer of how to start the process. And then that's going to be a few months later before you actually get the software. Mm -hmm. And so we, we try to streamline that is, is really what it is. Okay. And I would imagine that you guys are, are not the first company in the world uh, to build procurement software. Uh, when you were getting started five years ago, uh, what was the competitive landscape like? And what was really, what was wrong with the competition? Like, what was, what, what did you want to improve on? Yeah, the, the competitive landscape was incredibly full. So we, when we first started, we spent about six months before we, we wrote any code or built any software, just out talking with folks. And there were a few things that really stuck out in my mind. And I'm sure if you asked my, my co-founders, they'd probably have similar stories about this. But one of the things that really stuck out in my mind was that the, the response rate we were getting. So we were just cold reaching out to all sorts of different procurement people at everything from Fortune 100s down to little mom and pop machine shops. And the number of people that responded and took the time to talk to us, kind of, it blew my mind, definitely. And then we always asked, there were two questions that we always asked. One was, what have you bought to help with sourcing? And most people had spent money on something whether it was Ariba or some other SAP product or an Oracle product or IBM and Taurus or, or even one of the you know, giant host of smaller players, people had bought something. But then if you asked, what are you actually using? It turns out almost everyone was just using Word, Excel, and email. Because mm -hmm. if you think about an RFP or request for proposal, it's basically just a survey. And so people were sending out giant Excel files with hundreds of questions and then hand compiling the responses as they came back. And so it was really those two questions combined told us that there was a need out there that people were spending money on, but that it wasn't actually being fulfilled. And so as we dug in to try to understand what was what was going on, it turned out that a lot of this software had been built either for finance folks or for procurement, which is more the transactional side, the, the cutting of the POs, the managing of the invoices, um, not for the sourcing people who were doing the, a lot of the strategic work. And so even though none of us had a sourcing background or a procurement background, we realized that it was just kind of human workflow problems. It wasn't anything crazy. And we just had to take the time to cut out some of the features and then build the stuff that people actually needed in a usable way. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that uh, when you were speaking with these companies, a lot of them, uh, they bought some sort of software to help with procurement and sourcing, but they were not using it. And the reason that you're saying is that because this software was not built for the people that were actually supposed to be using it. They were built, they were built for the people that were making the decisions, such as the, the finance folks. Um, so what, exactly. How does that happen? Like, how is it that, you know, enterprises buy software, uh, 
that one does not get used, two is is not built for the people that it's meant to be used by. It's a it's a shockingly common theme. I I don't don't fully understand it, but it's I mean I would say it's definitely if you're selling to the CFO, they have a certain set of pains and they want software that's going to solve their pains regardless of of how painful it is for the actual people using it. And they're also just somewhat removed from it. But then I would all I would also say that the you have the general consumerization of of enterprise software that's that's gone on over the past five years or so and, and we were really lucky to be able to to ride that wave and be a big part of it for sourcing. Um, but it it definitely still happens and there's definitely still a lot of shelfware out there where I'm buying, you know, a giant package from a huge ERP vendor and I'm just gonna pick up all of these spare pieces and then and that's it. That's gonna be kind of pushed down on folks. You you mentioned before you guys started writing any sort of code, uh for was it like six months before? Uh, before actually sitting down and writing something, you uh, spend that time talking to, from what it sounds like, pretty much anybody that we listen. So anybody from mom and pop to actual enterprises. Uh, so when you that's exactly what it was. When you do this sort of customer outreach, uh, how do you even get a foot in the door with enterprises? It was it was a lot of of cold cold emails is is really what it boils down to. There was I mean some stuff came through networks, but for the most part it was exactly what a, a BDR team is, is doing now, where they're just scraping through LinkedIn, trying to find people's names, and then just, just cold emailing them. It was a lot of emails that were, hey, I'm a, an entrepreneur in your area, and I'd love to, to chat with you about what's going on with your, your job. Um, Andrew Durlach, one of, one of my co-founders, he, he led a lot of that effort and did a, a fantastic job. He was really our first BDR. And so when we start, finally had something to start selling, he was able to uh, continue that on. And when you guys were speaking to, when, when you were doing this customer outreach, was this, uh, was it like kind of struct, structured in a way or was it more like, you know, let's g- give me like 10 minutes of your time. Let me, let me try, try to figure out how things work at your company. Or did you have a certain like maybe survey like structure to it where then you could quantify it and then measure it and see kind of what's, what's the direction that the company should take? It was, it was really conversational. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, there was some key structure to it and, uh, and the big ones that we wanted to make sure we always asked was just understanding what is the process for buying things at your company and always, you know, what, what software have you purchased? What software are you using? Those were two key things we always wanted to make sure we asked. And then the rest of it was really conversational. I found that um, at the scale we were at, which we spoke with about 300 different folks from different companies at, at that scale, um, I think had we just gone in with a, an overall survey, one, we wouldn't have, have known the right questions to ask necessarily, because a lot of that was, a lot of our conversations changed over time as we begin to kind of slowly understand what was going on. So we didn't have to have a whole set of assumptions that we were necessarily testing at the start. It was more right. of a, you know, it was more of interviews of, of what is actually happening, allow us to discover what's going on. Towards the end, we probably could have moved to more of a, a survey format, but I'm, I'm, glad we didn't because the, it didn't allow us to pigeonhole ourselves right at the start. Okay. So you guys had a pretty good idea kind of what was wrong in the market. You had a bunch of companies that were spending money on something that, that they weren't using. Uh, so you, you, had a, you had a good idea of what you wanted to build. Uh, enterprise software takes notoriously long time to build. So compared to the consumer where you can just launch with something that's half-baked, when it comes to enterprise, usually it has to be a lot more polished off and it takes a lot more time and resources to build. How how long was this initial build time for you guys? Like, what, from from the moment when you started writing code and you launched, how how much time has passed? 
It was about two and a half months. Okay, so it's not bad. Yeah, so it, and um, I, I would actually disagree with, with your statement that it really has to be fully baked. Um, I, I went into it with, with that impression as well. And then it was actually Alex, our, our CEO, he, he basically badgered me into taking what we had far earlier than I was ready to show it to anyone and, and started forcing me to go out and start, start doing demos with it. When at a point when I wasn't, I was too embarrassed to show it to anyone. And he was like, no, we can sell it as is. And it turns out he was absolutely right. It, even though it was what I would consider to be completely half-baked, um, people were willing to pay for it. So what was the, what was the initial uh, reaction? Like, were, were people like right away ready to sign up on it? Or like, what, who, who did you, I guess, let, let me take a step back. Uh, when you, when Alex convinced you to go out and actually start demoing this product to people, who were you targeting? Were you going after finally kind of the people that were dealing with sourcing and procurement or were you, or were you going to like who, who within the company were you talking to? Uh, we, we were targeting the, the folks that are responsible for sourcing. Right. Um, so it was either the, the category manager or the, the chief procurement officer type, type persona. And that, that's who we're headed after. And we went through a, a few iterations. We initially thought that, you know, we, we'd go in at kind of the, the SMB level and then slowly, slowly grow the, the system. And as we expanded added features and, and matured, we'd be able to go up market. But it turns out um, SMBs don't really have a, a sourcing problem. It's really a, a big company issue. And so we had to go up market a lot faster than we, we initially thought. Okay. And how did you overcome this problem that your competitor faced where, you know, you you, tar- you, you, you tailored your product to the people that were actually going to be using it, so the folks that are involved in sourcing, uh, but they are not always the decision makers. So how did you get past the, the finance people, the CFOs, to get approval to actually purchase this thing when it's not being tailored to them like, uh, like it used to be with, with your competitors? Great question. Um, one of the advantages and disadvantages of, of creating sourcing software is that you're selling to the sourcing department. And they're, they're the folks that know how to buy things because they, they wrote the rules on how to buy stuff at any company. So when it comes to figuring out how you get through that, that process, um, they're, they're pretty fantastic at it. And then it was just really targeting and, and showing that, hey, you can get the value today from the system. And here's how it can provide value to your other stakeholders, whether it's your CFO or your, your head of IT. Um, there is additional value in the software. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you were, you, you mentioned you have a background in mechanical engineering, but at Scout, you were the head of product. Um, yep. How was that transition like for you from engineering to product? It, it was interesting. Um, I've always been a, a tinker and I don't, I kind of, I, I look at engineering as you're, you're taking the, the big problems and breaking them down into smaller problems. And it's a lot of, regardless of what type of engineering you're doing, it's, it's a lot of discovery. So I don't really see there as, um, a massive, massive shift. It's just going from designing machinery to writing code for it or designing interfaces. Um, and really, in my mind, designing the, the interface for a, a machine that just has push buttons versus designing software. Once again, it's, it's a little bit different, but it's, it's the same general principles. Yeah, and it looks like you know, the transition from engineering to product was quite successful for you. You guys built software that were used by some massive, massive companies such as Adobe, Best Buy, Levi, Salesforce, and of course, Workday. Um, how did you land? So, so after two and a half months of building the software, you started landing some clients. Uh, when did you land your first huge enterprise account such as Adobe or Best Buy? Um, 
So our, our first major customer was a company called DDR um, out of Cleveland. And then our, our that, that was our first large deal. And our, our first major customer is one that, well, actually, since you're in Canada, you've probably heard of it. It was uh, actually Boston Pizza was, was one of our largest early customers. Mm-hmm. And with them, uh, we had an in with one of their, their folks from IT and, and just met with them, walked them through it, and they, they got really excited about it. And that was probably about uh, two or three months after we released an initial product, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. And we were able to get in with a, a relatively small deal that's, that's grown up there. So actually, yeah, I'd say one of our, our largest early customers was, was actually Canadian. Hmm. And then, was it a lot easier to get the enterprises after that? What was that, sorry? Was it a lot easier after you, you, you closed this, this first big customer? Was it a lot easier to get the other big ones, the, the big fish after that? Um, not, not necessarily with that because going after, well, Boston pizza is really well known in Canada. It's, it doesn't quite, quite translate to the U S quite as much. Um, I would say that when we first started moving out to, to San Francisco is when we really started picking up a lot of well-known tech brands. Um, and that was a really kind of interesting transition as well, because we started in the Midwest out in Cleveland and there you're selling a lot of savings you're selling to kind of more mature companies but out here at the time companies weren't really looking at looking for savings it was we've got it's it was more how do we deploy the money that we have as efficiently as possible if i can get that new data center up and running two months earlier i care a lot more about that than saving a few million dollars versus in the midwest it was it was more of the opposite thought so we definitely had to pivot around that uh, and then we we picked up a, a few great Kind of marquee customers and, and one one fantastic one out here has been salesforce and a lot of um, category managers from salesforce end up at other companies and then come back and buy scout again that's how we ended up with um, twitter uber uh, zendesk and a few others as well so as you, as you guys were making this move from uh the midwest to the west coast uh you mentioned that you know the the, the target audience is actually is changing it's still you know large companies but it's you're looking for different things. Uh, so was, was the decision that you guys made that we're going to try to go after both of these sets, like segments of the market, or are you going to more, sh- did you guys decide to more kind of shift your focus on the, uh, the, the tech companies that, that you just mentioned, the Twitters and the Uber? So product-wise, the, the, the really interesting thing was we, we kept thinking that we were going to have to specialize or, or kind of focus on an industry, but it turns out buying stuff is buying stuff. There's not a, a whole lot of, drastic difference between how different companies buy things. It was more on the, the marketing side of things where we had to shift just some of our, the focus of our language rather than saying, hey, we'll, we'll come in and save you X thousands of dollars each year. It was more of a, we'll make sure that your, your sourcing team isn't a bottleneck for the rest of the organization right. and that you'll, we'll help you maintain compliance and manage that. Okay, so you were able to get both kind of segments of the market. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's, I mean, obviously worked out incredibly well for you guys. Uh, like I mentioned in, in the beginning of the, of the show, five years of being alive, you guys uh, got acquired for half a billion dollars. So that's what, like on average, 100 mil uh, per year, hell of an exit. Uh, at the time of the acquisition and the choir was Workday, uh, you guys had 300,000 users, uh, but 160 uh, employees and uh, 250 so customers. Uh, can you give us a high level overview about how this acquisition w- with Workday actually happened? 
Sure. Um, so we Workday became an investor in our our last fundraising round, and we, we really had a a three faceted partnership with them. We were a a software partner, and they were bringing us into deals where where they needed a a stronger sourcing tool, and then they were of course an investor, and they were also a a pretty big customer of ours too, and so we really I'd say we the teams got to know each other pretty well um, from a few different angles and kind of understand how both the cultures at the companies and, and how we just, just generally how we work. So that we had a great foundation going into any sort of negotiations. And then we were looking at, at raising another round and ended up in a, a conversation with, with Anil about, Hey, is it, he basically wanted to take the whole round and the whole company. So we went that route. When you uh, you mentioned the prior to acquisition work, it was a client of yours. It was an investor. Uh, did you have kind of a uh, some sort of feeling, or maybe a guess that the, an acquisition might be possible from Workday, or did it kind of come out of the blue? Um, I guess did you expect it at all, or was it? So it, it's not when a big enterprise software company has a venture fund. It's it's not a a secret that that they're they're looking for right. potential targets. Um, so it's not it's not completely out of the blue. I'd be be lying if I said said it was. Um, but at the same time, we we weren't expecting that. We we were never building a company for acquisition. Our our plan was always to grow it to a, yeah. to an IPO. Um, this just came along at a perfect time and at a a price that that made sense and with a a company that made sense. You know, you don't going to work for Workday. You don't have to swallow your pride and say, I guess, you know, well, we got acquired by Oracle, we'll, we'll survive it. It's like, this is, this is a great opportunity, a great place to go learn. Yeah, so I, I've, I've watched one of the interviews by your CEO, and he did mention, like, like you just said, that the, the long-term plan at the time of the interview was that you guys wanted to, to IPO. Uh, what, what, really, what was the decision that you guys kind of decided, okay, maybe let's forget about IPO. We've got a great company that has not a, been, we have a relationship with for a while. They're an investor, they're, they're a client, and they're interested in acquiring us. So what, what was the was kind of the convincing factor that made you guys want to uh, go the the acquisition route rather than kind of stay in it and and, and hope for an IPO? Um, I I would say a couple things. One, um, we thought we could grow larger faster as as part of Workday, and and when it comes to just making a general impact, we thought it was it was kind of a fantastic opportunity with great timing, and it. Turns out now the timing was even better than we, than we initially mm-hmm. imagined, um, it, and so there is definitely that side of things. And then, realistically looking at it, we thought based on what we assumed would happen in the market and everything else, the the timing and the the valuation made a lot of sense. And we we looked at how long would it take us to get back to this valuation if we were to go continue down down the IPO route. And it just, like I said, it just made sense to us. And it was a company that we knew and trusted. And so it wasn't, we, we didn't have to take a big leap of faith. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like looking back at it, it was, it was absolutely the right choice. Like on, on one hand, 2019 was not the best year for IPOs in general. And uh, now mm-hmm. kind of with everything that's happening with the coronavirus, it's just, you know, it's, you, you guys definitely made the right call. Uh, now that it's been a couple of months that you have, that the acquisition has finalized, how, how has the transition been? from being a co-founder at a company to now this much larger organization who, you know, you, you guys did have a good relationship with, but n- nevertheless, there, there's been the, there is this bit of a transition period. How has the transition been for you and your team? 
it's it's been pretty fantastic. Um, I would say that the the hardest thing has been figuring out. You know, I, we're going from a, a small team where you know we've got one or two people managing a pretty broad swath of stuff, and now I just have to go down and find the right people to to get answers. But when I find the right person, they're far more knowledgeable than I was even hoping for. And so the say the hardest thing about it is is finding the right person, but they're there and they're they're willing to help as soon as you you hunt them down properly. So I would say it's gone fantastically, and I can't imagine a better place to be right now. When when you guys got started, uh, you there's four co-founders in total, right? Yep. Okay, so four co-founders in total. When you guys got started four years ago, five years ago, sorry, 2014, uh, the initial plan for Scout was uh, you essentially wanted to modernize procurement. Right, so it was like you mentioned, very the way that p- purchasing decisions and the way that buying in general was done in companies was pretty archaic, uh, even at very very large organizations. Uh, so the 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 general plan that you guys had when you set out uh, with Scout was to essentially bring uh, procurement software to the 21st century. Uh, after five years and acquisition with Workday, and now it's 2020, do you guys feel that you've achieved that goal? I would say somewhat. I mean, we don't have 100% market penetration, so I would say we still have more work to do. Um, but I would say that even if you look at some of our competitors, they've they've suddenly kind of taken a step back and put a lot of effort into usability overall, and whether that's just you know giving kind of a, a fresh coat of paint to their software, or whether they've actually gone back and you know, truly redesigned it from from the ground up. It kind of depends on the competitor. But overall, I would say we we've created a, a shift in the the industry, and we've also kind of I would say promoted the the sourcing industry in a way that it it hasn't gotten a lot of credit before. It's getting more of of that seat at a table, and and people kind of pay attention to it a little bit more than than they did before. So it lo- looks like you guys made a pretty serious dent. Kind of lo- looking forward, uh, what, what do you think? Uh, what, what do you think? That, what what is the future of procurement within the next let's say I don't know 10, 10 20 years look like? In your opinion, I mean, you you guys have made a big influence in modernizing it to 2020. What does procurement software look like in 2030, 2040? Great question. Um, so it, the the consumerization is going to continue. I think that it, you'll hear a, a lot of sourcing folks or procurement folks talk about how it, it should be no more difficult to buy stuff in an organization than it is to to buy stuff for your house. Um, and I I agree with that. I think you will see a lot of a lot of continuation there. And then I think there's also, there's a huge focus and a, and a bit of a shift that, that we're going through of focusing on the supplier as, as a partner. And it's not just about um, going out and, and, and sourcing goods or, or services. It's really about figuring out the right partners. And I would say in a lot of ways, if you think about the, the shift that HR went through as they went from you know, recruiting an HR, just a pure compliance organization to talent acquisition and, you know, HCM, human capital management, or, you know, at Workday, we call it, it's the people and purpose team. And it's it's going from our people are just widgets to our people are the the kind of core of the company that are actually building this thing. And, and that's the respect we're giving them. I think that suppliers are going through that as well. And supplier management teams are, are looking at their suppliers that way. So I think you're going to see, see a lot of a lot of a shift to how do we partner with our suppliers properly and especially at like a, a time like this with with coronavirus stuff going on um, supply chains are critical and figuring out how you work with your suppliers to make sure you both stay in business through this is it's it's important work it's not just something you 
put off to the side anymore. And the, the last question I want to ask is kind of looking forward to, uh, to, to, to what, 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 what you have in store for, uh, for yourself personally. So you've done, uh, you've done mechanical engineering, you've done product, uh, you have worked for other companies and you have, of course, built uh, an incredibly successful company. Uh, what's, your, what's your plan now? I mean, you've, you've transitioned into Workday. Uh, the transition seems to be smooth. You're happy with where you are now. Uh, do you plan on staying with, uh, with procurement or do, is there maybe any plans to start a new company down the road? What, what are you thinking? So for now, I'm, I'm going to spend some time learning. Um, I've not worked at a large, a very large company before. Um, so I, I'm having a great time just kind of seeing how it works and, and understanding how a well-run company is run. And so for now, that's, I would say that's definitely the plan and, and we'll see what the future brings. Yeah, and I hope it works out very well for you, Chris. Thank you very much for being on the show. It was a pleasure to have a chat. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.